Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello, and welcome to Inside the Military Mind, my name is Dwayne France, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with licensed professional counselor Charlton Clark, co-clinical director for the Family Care Center. After that, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, Project Sanctuary, a national nonprofit that's changing how military families heal from the impacts of military service. On this week's Insight segment of the show, I'd like to talk about the stigma against seeking help, specifically the stigma that some service members and veterans have against talking to a mental health professional. How many times have you heard veterans scoff at the prospect of talking to a mental health professional? If you're a service member or veteran, how many times have you said something like that? One of my leaders in the Army used to say the maximum effective range of an excuse is zero meters. The reasons that many service members and veterans have for avoiding mental health counseling are just that, excuses. They're effective in keeping us stuck in a negative way of thinking and living, but they're certainly not effective in helping us live the peaceful post-military life we want. Here are 10 reasons that I've heard from veterans about why they avoid mental health counseling. One of the reasons I've heard is that some veterans think that mental health counseling won't help. This goes into the category of it's going to stay this way forever. One of the main reasons why I hear this from veterans is that they don't understand how talking to a mental health professional can actually help them come to terms with some things they experienced. The frustrating thing for us mental health professionals is we know that it works. We see it every day. We know veterans whose lives have been changed very much for the better once they started talking to a mental health professional and addressing their thoughts, behaviors, and emotions. It does work. You just have to try. Another reason that veterans give for avoiding therapy is that they think that they can't talk to mental health professionals if they haven't been there. This is a big one. If they're not a veteran, or even some more specific version of that, if they're not a combat veteran, a combat arms veteran, a veteran from the same era or service or occupational specialty as me, then they don't get it. This is something that we'll talk about in my conversation later with Charlton. But as a combat veteran, sure, there's a bit more of a fast track to trust with my clients. That doesn't mean that you have to have served to be able to help someone who's served. There's not enough mental health professionals who are veterans to meet the need. Additionally, a licensed mental health professional has a level of training and expertise to address mental health concerns, and if they're working with veterans, then hopefully they've done some work around understanding the military and veteran culture. If you're unsure, then ask, do you work with a lot of veterans? If they say, I'm just starting out, I really don't know that much about veterans, then maybe you want to find somebody else. Sort of like when you take your car to the shop. Do you know much about Jeeps? If they say, I'm just starting out, I really don't work on them that much, then you probably can be sure that I'm not leaving my Jeep there. It doesn't mean that that's the case with all mechanics, though. Another reason I often hear is that I'll lose my blank. Guns, security clearance, whatever. If I go to therapy, I'll lose my security clearance, or they'll take my guns away from me. 
not true, but you have to believe it's not true before you try it out. Going to see a therapist doesn't mean that you won't be allowed to own a gun. I see veterans all the time, and they're able to hunt, go to the range, shoot skeet, all of it. And security clearances? In 2016, the Director of National Intelligence implemented a change to the infamous Question 21 on the security investigation form. The changes shift the focus from whether or not the applicant sought treatment to whether or not a diagnosed mental health condition impacts their judgment, reliability, or trustworthiness. Even before that, though, seeking mental health counseling wasn't a disqualifying factor for a security clearance. After each of my first two deployments, my wife and I went to marriage counseling. That was in 2008 and 2010, and I applied for and was granted a top-secret security clearance in 2012. It didn't hold me back, and it shouldn't hold veterans back. Another reason that veterans give is they think that what's in the past needs to stay in the past. This is the locked duffel bag argument. What's in the past is in the past, it stays in the past, and it will always remain in the past. Until it doesn't. That's a sneaky part about unresolved trauma. They crop up in the present. We may have all of the stuff that bothered us locked away in a dark room of our mind, but it doesn't mean that it's going to stay there. Ignoring it only makes it build up and ultimately potentially overwhelm us. Or it can come out at weird times when we don't want it to. Ignoring the warning light on the car doesn't make the problem go away, and ignoring the warning signs of unresolved pain and trauma doesn't make the problem go away either. Another reason I often hear is, all they're going to do is medicate me. This is another common misconception. I've been doing this for years, and I've not medicated anyone. I'm not allowed to, as a master's level mental health counselor. That's psychiatrist and psychiatric nurse practitioners. Could medications help? Sure, depending on what you're dealing with. Are they always the answer? Not really, especially when it comes to aspects of veteran mental health that have no medication interventions, such as lack of purpose and meaning, moral injury, needs fulfillment, or relationship changes. There is no one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to mental health. Assuming that you don't like the one thing that you think they're going to do before you go to see if that's what they're going to do is rejecting the answer before you even ask the question. Check it out and see. Another reason that I hear is people think that I'm doing just fine without it. Really? Are you? Well, you might be, but then again, you might be drinking too much or yelling too much or getting too angry at those around you over small things like perceived disrespect. There was a need to leave the boots at the door when we were in the military, and there's certainly a need to leave the boots at the door when we leave the military. If you find that your sleep is wrecked by nightmares or your days filled with anxiety or depression, are you really doing just fine without it? You might not be telling yourself... You might not be telling yourself the whole truth. Another reason veterans often give is that they think that their buddies are doing just fine without it. And this goes along with the last one. Are they really doing just fine? Being vulnerable is not something that veterans are comfortable with. We want to show ourselves as capable, reliable. If we don't show what's going on behind the curtain to our buddies, then what makes us think that they're going to show their reality to us? And it's even worse on social media. We see our friends in their happy lives, eating great food and going to interesting places, but social media is like comparing our lives to someone else's highlight wheel. Another reason that I often hear is that going to therapy is admitting weakness. This should probably be up there near number one if we're doing this in any kind of order. Some veterans think if I go to a therapist, then it means I'm blank, weak, a loser, somebody who can't hack it, undependable, worthless. How negative are each of those statements? And how would we feel if we heard our kid or our spouse or our best friend say that about themselves? A study on the perceptions of stigma in veterans asked a group of veterans to rate how they'd feel about a particular statement compared to how they would feel about their fellow veteran regarding that same statement. 44% of veterans thought that they would be perceived as weak for going to a mental health counselor. Only 12% of those same veterans said that they would consider another veteran weak for doing the same thing. 
That's a huge disconnect. We apply stigma differently to ourselves than we do to other veterans. And that's something that keeps us stuck in negative patterns of thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. Another reason that I hear is some say that I've tried asking for help before and it didn't work. This is a challenging one. And again, something that Charlton and I are going to talk about later in the show. You've reached out for help like they said you should, and you can't get in to see somebody for five weeks. Or you get in to see somebody in the community and they have no clue how to handle what's going on with you. I've heard it all. Therapists who start crying when they hear you explain what you went through, or therapists that argue about your politics. I once had someone tell me that the therapist they saw would sit on the floor, legs crossed, with their eyes closed during the session. I get it. But I'm not those therapists. Those therapists aren't me. And that's not even someone who represents the mental health profession. We don't stop at one mechanic when the car needs to get fixed, but we will absolutely stop at the first sign of someone who can't help with our mental health stuff. A mental health professional relationship is as much personal as it is professional. Find someone that you get along with and avoid those that you don't get along with. It's as simple as that. One final excuse that I often hear is veterans say that there's nothing wrong with me. And this is similar to the I'm doing just fine argument, but it's also different. This is where veterans believe that their experiences justify how they feel. They know that they're not doing fine. They know that they're struggling. But then they say, what do you expect? Have you seen what I've been through? There's nothing wrong with me that a little blank can't fix. Fill in the blank again. Booze, isolation, gym time, angry rant. In the meantime, after we keep applying these band-aids, the cracks keep getting bigger and bigger. This too shall pass may work in some cases, but definitely not the majority. So those are some of the reasons that I've heard for veterans to avoid mental health counseling. Do they sound familiar? Any that I missed? It'd be great to hear your thoughts about any that I forget or any maybe that you disagree with. Share them with us by dropping an email to militarymind at FCCSprings.com. Coming up on today's interview segment, Charlton Clark, a licensed professional counselor and co-clinical director for the Family Care Center, is going to talk about some of these things as well as trauma and some interventions that can help. Charlton has been a therapist since 2006. Before coming to the Family Care Center, he was in clinical leadership at a large mental health center for over five years. He specializes in trauma recovery and anger management. He's worked with combat veterans, disaster victims, and abuse victims. Let's get into my conversation with Charlton and come back afterwards to hear about this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. So you've been working with veterans as a clinical mental health counselor for a number of years. Um, you have service members and veterans in your family, but you're not a veteran yourself. And we often hear from veterans mm -hmm. that they'd prefer a therapist who's been there, but you found that you've been able to overcome that objection with veteran clients. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think, um, you know, even lately I would say I've had uh, some of my clients who, who don't even mention it. They're not even concerned. Uh, sometimes they assume I'm a veteran or I'm in the service because I have a short haircut. <laughs> so um, I kind of have to tell them sometimes, no, I wasn't, I wasn't in the service. But I, I think the way that I've overcome that is, you know, being just straightforward with people. No nonsense, you know, um, listening a lot, but just, just shooting them straight. I think they appreciate that. Um, don't pretend like I would never try to pretend like I understand what they've gone through necessarily from an experiential standpoint but i can bring the uh the knowledge about trauma and how it impacts people to them in a way that i think is you know understandable relatable um, and i think that's that's how we make the connection so i've yeah it i've it's it's uh 
it's we, I found a good groove, I think, there. Well, I think veterans don't need a lot of reasons to avoid therapy, and any reason is a good reason. <laughs> right. And sometimes uh, veterans can use that as a reason to avoid therapy. So, well, not only not only weren't you a veteran, but you weren't an 11 Bravo that served during right, this time. Right. And, and really, those are objections that people will do to, to just maybe avoid therapy. Yeah, and I mean, that's not unlike, you know, I guess anyone that's going to therapy trying to find reasons. Because therapy is in the beginning feels awkward it feels awkward it feels unknown it can feel scary Uh, there's a lot of stigma around therapy obviously whether it's you know it doesn't matter what uh background you're coming from i mean i think uh, therapy still has somewhat of a stigma on it that it's a sign of weakness or that you know only uh weak people go and and do therapy and so um yeah so i think you know anybody can try to to I guess use those excuses but I, I like i said i've been really uh really pleasantly surprised lately that that the majority of the veterans i'm i'm working with they don't even seem to be worried too much that that you know they don't ask me like what's my you know background or they want to know if i served or not i mean um it, you know i think they just they're like hey, i want to get help and I, and and it's the they want somebody that's going to listen that's going to that's not going to talk down to them I mean, that's a big thing, you know, that's not going to come at them and try to um, necessarily be like a teacher. But, you know, again, starting with the listening, starting with you tell me, uh, you you kind of lead the way here in this. Like, I'm going to follow you, you know, you you help me understand you, what your experience is and we'll go at your speed too. And that's another thing is I don't ever, especially when I'm working with someone that has been in combat and has trauma from that um, or someone in general that has that has trauma. I never try to force, let's hurry up and, and talk about these things. You know, you have to build rapport. You have to build that trust. So I take plenty of time to try to, to build trust in the beginning and uh, so that we can, you know, go into the harder places when the time is right. So that's maybe a misconception, I think, that a lot of people have. Um, and, and we'll talk about service members, mm-hmm. veterans, or military, but just in general is mm-hmm. people have the idea of, um, if you're a male therapist, you've got patches on your elbows, you smoke a pipe, and there's a couch <laughs> involved, right? Like your Fraser Crane. Yeah, uh-huh. or, or you know, Freud on the couch and stuff right. like that. That, right. that people think that the first time they come into therapy, they're going to have to you know, tell their life right. story and talk about their mommy and all this other stuff. Right, right. And I think, I think sometimes people are, are surprised that, you know, um, it's as down to earth as it is. You know, they are expecting to come in and it's like they're going to go to the principal's office or something and sit with – somebody that's going to sit behind a desk and, you know, kind of talk at them and, and, and these kinds of things. And when they come in and they realize that it's, it's a conversation now, it's a, it's a strategic conversation, of course, but, but it's a conversation and it's uh, there's no pressure and um, it's, it's um, you know, it's more about connecting with them, understanding, listening, um, empathizing those kinds of things and so when they I think when they realize like oh I've had a lot of people go like oh this I wasn't expecting this I thought they were expecting patches on the elbows and Fraser Crane and let's get really you know deep philosophically and these kinds of things and and when they realize that wow this felt more of like sitting down and having a good conversation like you and I are having it's you know it's been a, I think they've been pleasantly surprised by that for sure 
And I think for a lot of service members, I, I sort of describe it as uh, they didn't have a problem going through a door in Iraq or Afghanistan, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, they had all their buddies with right, them, but they right. weren't they weren't afraid to go through that door. But right. coming through the door of a therapist's office, where arguably whatever's going to happen to a therapist's office is nowhere near as, right. as dangerous as it was in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. But that's a harder door to step in than yeah. kicking down a door in Fallujah. Yeah, and I think it's it, and it's because you know they were trained to do that. After a while, that was their experience. That's what they knew. They knew how that worked. They knew all the the pieces and parts of doing something like that. But when you come into therapy, that's a that's a whole lot of unknown, and and it's a lot of emotional vulnerability. And let's just face it, that you know emotional vulnerability is is terrifying, and you know for anyone. And so you can get some of the toughest people in the world you know that have done some 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 hard things um and that probably feels less scary than having to come in and sort of open their heart or open up uh, the insides to to someone that they they don't really know and and so yeah absolutely i think that and i think again I, you know that's the truth for for anyone coming into therapy for the first time there's just it feels like there's so many unknowns and i think that's why a therapist in the beginning has to has to make sure they're building that trust and rapport and that they're not just rushing into well you know certainly i don't think therapy is about quote unquote fixing people or those kinds of things but but if you you know if you don't build the rapport and you don't build the trust then you can't move into the heavier lifting. You know, you're not going to walk into the gym and bench press 350. At least I'm not, you know, ever. But, you know, if you've never exercised before, you're not going to walk into the gym and bench press 350 right off the bat, right? you got to kind of work your way up to it. And so I know certainly when I'm working with people that I want to make sure that we're, you know, we don't move too fast. You know, we take our time. We, we're not on the clock, you know. And, and part of building that trust is understanding about military and veteran culture. Again, you've had family right. members who served, right. but right. you hadn't served. Right. There's not enough of us veterans who were in right. the clinical mental health field right. to be able to meet the needs. Right. Um, how have you developed more understanding around the military and veteran culture sure. in the time that you've been working in the community? So, I mean, I have friends that are veterans. Uh, you know, um, I, I think you do a lot of reading. Um, you want to read about stories and experiences and, and those kinds of things to try to educate yourself about what people have been through. I, I, you know, and, and what I'm trying to do is every time I work with a veteran, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to – I'm not just focusing on how do I help them, and I'm also learning. I, I, I take every opportunity that I work with a veteran to make sure that I'm learning and listening and, and, and um, storing up what – okay what this experience was and then you start to see like experiences are extremely similar right like you know maybe if even they're in different parts of the world they've had similar experiences and then you can and then that helps you you know you you work with one veteran and they have the courage to share your heart their heart to you and then you take what you've learned and then you use it in the next situation Right. Like you, you take all of that that knowledge you've gained from them about here's what it was like. Here's what I felt. Here's what was so uh, difficult and painful and scary. Um, and then you you use that you, you hold on to that in the memory bank so that you can bring that to bear in the in the next session, in the next session, in the next session. So I think constantly trying to be a student, trying to learn respectfully. I mean, obviously, I'm a I'm a big fan of the military, you know, and so I, I am interested in reading about um, stories and, and, and so forth. And so, um, 
And so, I, you know, that's that's what I try to do is just try to be a student about it and, and it, with humility, right? Like you just – you're humbled. You're humbled by what people have, have sacrificed and the courage they've had and the things that they've they've done done for us. So, And I think – that, and I've had a, a colleague, Vietnam veteran, who said um, – regardless of the differences, mud still smells like mud, right. blood still smells like blood, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there are similarities mm-hmm. and there are obvious differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even I, as a veteran, I have to have that humility because I can't say that I right. knew what it was like in Fallujah. I wasn't in right. Fallujah. I was in Baghdad, right? right. So right. there's this idea of just because I'm a veteran doesn't mean that I'm more prepared um, to, to do something with a veteran than someone who hasn't been. Yeah. And again, I mean, I think, you know, to kind of generalize things, if if you don't have humility as a therapist, I mean, you're going to be, you're already starting in a hole, right? And so um, you have to come into into every session uh, with with humility and, and wanting to learn and understand and grow and, and those kinds of things. So, yeah, so humility is key. And, and I think that is important. I, and we have been having these conversations in, in our field about cultural competence, but now mm-hmm. emerging into cultural humility, knowing right. that I don't know anything more right. uh, about that individual or, or even about their experience. Mm-hmm. But but also you have a measure of expertise. One of your specialties is trauma. You mentioned right. it before and helping service members and veterans mm-hmm. and others overcome trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of weeks ago on the radio show, I, I talked specifically about post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. but trauma just doesn't cause somebody to develop PTSD. There are other conditions. Um, exposure to trauma can impact a wide range of th- things in the military population. Right. You know, one of the things I've been saying lately to some of my clients is that trauma can be a liar. Um, trauma will tell you things about yourself, um, about your future, about the world, about relationships and other people that just aren't true. And, you know, and this this is the impact of trauma, right? Like when, our, when we are traumatized and our brain is ultimately, I think, trying to protect us by keeping us on edge all the time, right? It really does impact the way we interact in our world and with other people and the ways we think about ourselves and in situations. And so I try to help people understand that, you know, and, and the feelings can obviously feel very strong. And so because they feel strong, we go, well, I got to I must have that's I got to believe that. Right. And so trying to help people sort of um, not only deal with a physiological piece of trauma, because there really is a physiological piece of how it wires our autonomic nervous system. And, you know, we're we get triggered even when we're not thinking about it. Right. The thinking parts of our brain are not engaged. It's these, you know, lower brain functions that are that are getting keyed up in situations where it's our body is picking up on things but way before the thinking part of our brain is so we we you work on that piece through things like emdr um heart math um but but also trying to help people understand like how the the traumatic experiences have shaped their beliefs about themselves like i said other people um you know situations um, their future potentially. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. 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 And, and I think this idea of, of trauma being a liar, right? Yeah. You know, I felt this way in that situation. Right. Now I'm in this other situation. I feel the same way. Right. So I may be just as unsafe in this situation. Right. Even though it's the middle of the, the supermarket. Right. And not in the middle of the door right. market. Right. Right. And I, and I think, again, some of it is, I think, is our, is our brain trying to help us because it's, our brain is trying to say, like, hey, let's not, get, let's not go through something like that again. So let's always be ready. 
Um, but, but it, you know, and in that way, you kind of have to give your brain a little bit of a break. You know, like, okay, you're trying, you're trying to help me a little bit, but it's get, certainly isn't a, a great time here. But, but more than that, I think sometimes is, is going a little further and saying like, Hey, this is, there's a little bit of this. It's like, how do I, you know, start working on, you know, how it's, it's not really telling me the truth. Like it's, there is a little bit of how it's misleading me, right? Like that I am still in danger, um, that, you know, these people can't be trusted, that I'm no good or that I'm a bad person, things like this. And so, you know, I think these are the things that we try to work through and, and try to help people understand and, and look at, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's pretty it's pretty um, it's intense work, but it's really good work. Um, and I really it's some it's some of my favorite work it, as hard as it is at times. Um, for both the client and the clinician, it is absolutely some of the most rewarding work I've ever done. And, and I think it, it might be helpful to talk about trauma. Like the sure. word trauma is overused, right? You know, yeah. if, if I, um, you know, I often describe trauma as a little t as something that upset me. But here you're right. talking about like literal trauma. Obviously, the first thing people think about with veterans is combat, but right. vehicle accidents, natural sure. disasters, like sure. things where it's truly life-threatening. That's right. what you're talking about. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think trauma can be on a spectrum. I mean, I think there can be, you know, traumas, you know, like if let's say you get embarrassed really bad at school when you're a kid. I mean, that's traumatic. That's going to have an impact on people. Uh, you might not have been afraid for your life, Right. Um, and so I think there can be I've noticed in my work that, you know, trauma can be on a spectrum. So I don't ever want to say like, well, that that experience didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the pain is pain, whatever level it's at. Um, but, yeah, I think what I what we're talking about here is more of this uh, trauma where people were like my I felt like my life was in danger. Um, you know, I was going into fight or flight. Um, you know, just to try to survive, right? Um, but but I have, you know, I've worked with people that have had, you know, traumas all the way up and down the spectrum. And I always I always encourage people don't compare your stuff to other stuff because mm -hmm. no matter who I've ever worked with in my career, they've always said, well, but this person's had it worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and so I always say it's like you know don't don't compare pain. There's no value in that. You know, your, your experience is your experience and it, it matters and has made it a, an impact on you. And, you know, don't, don't dismiss it because you think it's quote unquote, not as big as someone else's trauma. And that may be another one of those lies that trauma tells sure. is that, you know, I don't deserve to be sitting here taking your time as a Absolutely. therapist because I've got all my fingers and toes. For right. Oh yeah. I mean, I've definitely... You know, I've, I've talked to guys who've been through really uh, intense combat situations, but because they came out whole and that they didn't get burned or, you know, lose a limb, they, they're kind of like, hey, I don't, I don't deserve to talk about this. This person over here should be, and they almost, that is one of the lies, well, I'm weak because, it, look, I have all my, you know, I have all my limbs, so what should I, why should I be here? That's absolutely a good point. I think that's another lie that, and, and, and again, to kind of go back to your original uh, thought about the things that keep us out of the, the ways that sometimes we, the things we use to avoid therapy, that could be one too, is that, well, my trauma is not really big enough or important enough or damaging enough. And so, you know, because I, I think lots of times, um, 
you know, if I were to, uh, you know, personalize trauma and make it almost like a, a thing or a person, you know, I don't know if it always wants to be brought out into the light of day, right? It, it, you know, and so it, it, there's that difficulty that, that, as you said, like walking through that door of, I'm going to have to deal with this. I'm going to have to talk about this. I'm going to have to face this, you know. A good way to avoid that is to say, well, it's not that big a deal, right? It's not the same as what this person had to go through. So I think that's some of the challenge when people use it, we call it maladaptive, but things uh-huh. that don't work, right? Uh-huh. Coping mechanisms that sure. don't necessarily work um, in the long run is they work in the short run. Like the avoidance sure. actually sure. works. Drinking, yeah. drugs, like those things You wouldn't work do it if it didn't in work. In the short right. run. Right. But it's the long-term damage of that is, yeah. is really the problem. Because when, when you know, the, the, it doesn't make the problems, it, it doesn't make the pain or the impact of the trauma dissipate. It just numbs it for a certain amount of time so when the uh, when the drinking's done the the, the trauma is still there the impact is still there and hasn't been dealt with so it is it's just sort of pushing it off pushing it off pushing it off you know and the it's kind of like not paying your credit card bill you know the money doesn't go anywhere it just gets interest you know and so you're just the, the bill's still going to be there so you might as well start paying it down now right and and not wait so um, but yeah, it, it, they work in the short term, but long term, it's not going to bring the relief that, that people are, I think, desperately want. And I think that's the other point. Uh, another point that you just made is that it compounds, right? Is, right. Is, and, you know, we'll say it often, but the military is as much running away from something as running to something. We have stuff in right. our childhood that we're trying to run away from, mm-hmm. or, or the military is the easiest way out. But there's trauma that compounds on top of trauma. So mm-hmm. combat trauma, perhaps mm-hmm. somebody's been sexually assaulted, then mm-hmm. they get into a vehicle accident. Right. And the trauma compounds almost like the compounding interest on that credit card. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then sometimes people, when they have these, you know, if they have multiple traumas, then they start believing this idea of like, well, this is all I'll ever have. Cursed. This, yeah, I'm cursed. Um, and so, it, it, you know, and I think things as you, if you don't deal with trauma, the effects of that, the residual effects will compound, like it will impact your relationships. And so then that adds more pressure and pain, uh, you know, whether that's, you know, relationships with spouse or kids or friends or relatives, uh, it might, you know, make working difficult, which then, you know, the inability to, to earn a, a living, you know, is, is starts to compound. And so absolutely it, it, you know, um, it's and I think attacking the trauma, dealing with the trauma, the experiences, as difficult as it is in the beginning, it's always I tell people like this is this is going to be tough in the beginning, right? Like this is not going to be easy. Um, I never candy coat it for people, um, but I talk about in the long run though. When if we do something like EMDR you're going to experience relief, right? The the memories aren't going to disappear, but they're not going to be in that place in your brain where it's constantly getting triggered by everyday experiences. And so then you'll be, you know, and I've watched people get freed up and be able to do things and that they've wanted to do and interact with people and, and, um, have more fulfilling lives. And, and that's that's ultimately the goal. Everybody, you're listening to Inside the Military Mind, and today we're having a conversation with Charlton Clark, a licensed professional counselor and co-clinical director of the Family Care Center. 
Uh, so you talked a little bit about stereotypes that veterans might have, you know, mm-hmm. coming to therapy. Um, but then there are stereotypes that people have about veterans, things like, um, you know, John Rambo shooting up the town right, or this right. broken warrior perpetually damaged by combat. Right, right. It's not always true. The treatment is available to help service members. And like anybody, they can overcome these traumatic experiences. They can heal. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and again, you know, I think about the experiences I've had doing EMDR with, with clients and watching them experience um, relief from a memory, you know, or an experience for the first time. It, you know, it's, an, it's amazing. Um, and or, you know, you know, I think sometimes, too, when you talk about some of these traumas, like helping people normalize what they're experiencing, that they're not weird or broken or you know, crazy or anything like that. That it's like, no, this is, this is a, this is a common experience that people have. These are the, these are the common byproducts of a traumatic experience. And that's in and of itself, I think is very healing because so many people come in thinking like, you know, no one is, is experiencing what I am. No one's thinking like this necessarily. Um, or if they tell me they, lots of times, uh, one of my old professors used to call it having an ace in the hole. He would say people all the time carry around an ace in the hole that they think if they play that on the table, it's going to end the game. You're going to walk away and be like, I don't want anything to do with you. And as they share these experiences and you offer sort of that unconditional positive regard, you know, um, and that acceptance and understanding and empathy, it's like that that is a powerful experience too, to watch people go like, wow, you're not grossed out by me right now. And it's like, not at all. Like, right. I mean – you know, and so, yeah, there is a lot of healing available. It is, and it is, it is amazing and, and powerful to watch when people start to have the burdens lifted. And I think that idea of the the ace in the hole, like everybody has that one, <clears throat> that one experience, that one story that if I tell it, then people are just going right. to run screaming to right. the hills. Um, and for a lot of veterans, they think that about themselves. Right. And so they, I think that about myself. Right. So therefore, the other people, if they, if they, if I tell them what's in my head, they're going to feel the same way about me than I feel about me. Right. Right. And so that's in in yeah. And I think that's one of the powerful pieces of therapy, is being able to come in, be brutally honest, and then you know have that therapist not run for the hills, and not because I'm getting paid. Right. Like it's because I'm truly am saying you you're not you're not <laughs> you know you're not abnormal right like this is what happens when someone has gone through these painful you know impossible experiences and so i i love being able to to offer that to people that's one of my favorite parts of being a therapist well, I think especially for this population, though, we have a responsibility as therapists to ensure that that's the case mm-hmm. because um, veterans, uh, they generalize bad experiences to therapy. If mm-hmm. I have an ex- bad experience with a therapist, then that means all therapy is bad. Sure. But they specify good experiences. If I have a good experience with therapist, only my therapist is good, <laughs> right? And we need to flip that because mm-hmm. they'll hear that a, a veteran who has a bad experience, they won't come back for another 10 or 12 years and how right. much more damage is being being done in those 12 years well i think especially in this community we certainly have a duty to make sure that we're uh, culturally competent um, that we're consistently learning about what the needs are of of our veterans um, and that we are providing that quality care that's what i like about working at family care center is that 
Dr. Weber and the team there is absolutely committed to to being, you know, um, on top of that and providing, you know, across the board, no, doesn't matter what therapist you have, um, that they're all providing that type of care. And then I think as a community, because this is a community with a lot of therapists, right? We have a lot of schools around here. And so this is something that I think as a community, we certainly need to be having even more education and awareness and, and training um, around this so that we, we don't have those you know, that our veterans don't have those experiences where they say, I had one bad experience and now I'm done. Right. And I'm not because you may only get one shot. Mm -hmm. And so you got to make sure you're ready when it, when the time comes. Yeah. And there's this idea of we keep asking veterans to knock on the door, but when they do knock on the door, we have to be ready. You for better it. be ready. Um, and to make sure that those individuals um, understand veterans. Again, you don't right. have to be a veteran, but you have to be prepared uh, right. to work with veterans. And one of the things I was going to say earlier is that I think, you know, in my experience is that veterans want somebody who's genuine. Mm -hmm. Like, don't come in, you know, like putting on a cheesy face or trying to act like you know something that you don't like if you're not genuine they can smell it a mile away and then you're 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 done and so you know i think as therapists we need to come in and just be genuinely interested in in what's going on and genuinely um have that desire to to want to to listen and, and help i had a buddy of mine who He's a Marine. For some reason, I have a lot of Marines in my <laughs> network. Um, they say it's because I have good taste, but I don't think that's it. Uh, but uh, he was talking about he was going to his therapist, mm -hmm. and, uh, and and he you know, came in and told her, and she said, well, I'm not a, a combat veteran, so I don't know if I can help you. And he said, I'm not here be to, to talk to you as a veteran about my veteran stuff. I'm here right. to talk to you as a human about my human stuff. Right, and I think that's – I mean, that's exactly what I was uh, – you know – that's exactly what I'm talking about is that it's even though I don't have the experience as a veteran, right? I can I I can do the let's one human talking to another human about human stuff. And so I, I think that's where you find that that common ground, even if you're not a veteran and that you can still help people. So if you come in genuinely wanting to be that safe place for someone to come and open their heart, then I think people are going to. And I think it's that idea of being able to say, you know, someone really does give a crap, right? Right. You know, I, I think people right. don't give a crap. I, sure. You know, even veterans themselves may say, I don't give a crap, or people I've talked to don't right. seem to give a crap. But this person actually cares, and just that human-to-human -human connection can be healing. I think so. I think that's a huge – I mean, even the, the, the things in research that are coming out about the autonomic nervous system is they're talking about the way to help the autonomic nervous system level back out is connecting with another person feeling safe a uh, wise old therapist here in town we should have him on the show bill bray he 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 would say to me charlton safety is the therapy and i think he stole that from uh steve porges who who pioneered the polyvagal theory but the idea of feeling safe is the therapy it, you know that, that and i think as therapists that's a huge part of what we're doing R rather than all of the great you know uh little sound bites that we might have gotten from whatever book we're reading right now you know uh, it's it's helping them feel safe helping them feel safe helping them feel accepted that literally is the therapy
And I think for veterans, that's critical. I had a veteran one time who, uh, you know, he said in his mind, he was like, when I went to Afghanistan, I was Captain America, right? I was right. going to save the world. He right. said, I walked into that valley thinking I was a superhero. I walked out knowing I was a supervillain, right? What mm. he experienced mm-hmm. changed his opinion about himself mm-hmm. so much that mm-hmm. he didn't even feel safe with himself. Mm. And, and being able to provide that safe space and realizing that this can exist in my life again right is critical is absolutely critical and you know and being able to to uh, walk alongside someone who's wrestling with some of these really difficult painful um, thoughts you know beliefs um, you know the, the the idea that he's walking out feeling like a villain you know when all he ever wanted to do was was help right and so again goes back to trauma as a liar right it, it can it can shape the way you think about yourself in ways that are are not true not healthy not helpful so and we do have a lot of different tools uh to be able to do that right i mean it is about like you said building rapport right um, building trust in a safe space but then right. there are actually interventions that will address what we're talking about Absolutely. one specific thing that you specialize in and, and you mentioned a couple times is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing or emdr mm-hmm. uh, this technique is probably something not a lot of people are familiar with mm-hmm. uh, but it's been proven to be very effective if the problem the client is dealing with is trauma exposure or ptsd right. Right. I, I can tell you there there came a, a point in my uh, practice as a therapist where I was dealing with so much trauma and not seeing any forward movement that I had a supervisor at the time that I went to her pretty much desperate and said, I don't know, what I, I'm stuck. And she's the one that said, you need to learn how to do EMDR. And so we're really uh, blessed to have a great EMDR teacher here in town. I mean, he's, I'd say he's one of the big wigs in the EMDR community, uh, Dr. John Hartung. And so, you know, got some training from him and, re- and started to learn about how trauma gets stuck in one part of the brain. Mm-hmm. And it's, in a, it's on the opposite side of the brain from verbal speech, where the capacity for verbal speech is, is located. So literally sometimes talking about a trauma, you're, you're talking about two different sides of the brain. And so what EMDR does is it helps these traumatic experiences move through the brain in the way they're supposed to. But, you know, trauma oftentimes makes the, the, it, the traumatic experience gets stuck in that one part of the brain and it won't move forward. So it stays there and it gets triggered over and over and over. But through EMDR, which does, uh, you know, to try to keep it short, you know, it's, it's reprocessing the memory using bilateral stimulation. You're literally stimulating both sides of the brain while you're working through a painful memory. And that helps it move into another part of the brain called narrative memory where you don't forget you can't wipe your brain you know from the memory but it's not going to be triggered it's not going to be as as uh, visceral when you think about it it's not going to trigger the uh, the autonomic nervous system to a to a degree to where you feel like you're back in fight or flight again and so for for a lot of people um and, and again talking about military and veterans specifically when they think the thought, remembering mm-hmm. the event, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. they feel the emotion. Right? right. Both of those two things are absolutely are, you know, two sides of the same coin. Right. But it doesn't have to be. We can think about things in our past, like right. high school. Right. 
maybe without without the emotion. We can think about different things without feeling the same emotion, but trauma has the very specific thing of as the memory comes up, so the emotion comes with it. And EMDR separates those two. Yeah, and and when that and when that memory, if it's if it is stuck, as we were saying a second ago, it like I said, it triggers the autonomic nervous system. So you're you're back in fight or flight. Those those lower brain functions are like we're back to we have to be on guard we have to watch our our back we have to scan the highway for odd objects on the side of the road um, those kinds of things and so yeah EMDR helps the memory be able to like it's like uh, you know having a, a a bookcase you know it's like well I read that book but it's not like I'm reading it right now right I can remember I read that book but I'm not in the book right now, right, yeah. and experiencing it. So, and and on top of that, not just and you mentioned the autonomic nervous system, but we're not just behaving as if it's happening, like chemically, neurologically, right. like the testosterone, right. and the cortisol, and the adrenaline, adrenaline are all dumping absolutely. and amping up in our body. That doesn't right. necessarily have the brain. The body's uh-huh. like, well, I felt like that then. I'm feeling like this now. Therefore, right. now must be then. Right, and it's not. It's not a conscious choice. You're talking about. You know, these things are kicking in without the talking parts of the brain or the thinking parts of the brain being involved. So it's not a conscious choice. And so EMDR is one kind of intervention. Mm-hmm. And this is something I think that especially if we've been doing this for a number of years, veterans think they have to tell their story over and over. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's prolonged exposure mm-hmm. therapy mm-hmm. or cognitive processing therapy. Again, mm-hmm. two very good interventions mm-hmm. that do that. Sure. Um, EMDR one of the benefits that I've seen veterans with EMDR is you don't have to tell your story over no. and over again. No, you usually start with a, what they would call, uh, you know, a keystone or a capstone memory, um, sort of the memory that, you, you know, you, you kind of go back to on a regular basis. And then with, when the bilateral stimulation, which is that, is that part of the EMDR process, when that begins, then the brain will take you where it wants to go. And it may not always be, I'm going to go back through every single detail of, of what happened. It might go in different places that both the client and the clinician don't expect. I mean, that's always what I'm just fascinated about when I take a client through EMDR is to watch the brain go where it knows it needs to go to, to get to a better place. It, it really is a, an, amazing, an amazing machine. Um, and if you can get it running right, it's it's uh, it's it's pretty powerful. So yeah, it is not necessarily I have to tell my story over and over and over again. Um, and so and and uh, lots of times the clinician is doing very little talking as well. So. And and again, you've talked a little bit before about heart math, um, mm-hmm. and and these are maybe clinical terms, and, mm-hmm. and would love people to to be mm-hmm. more understanding, but. Um, EMDR is a neurological intervention, right. but we also have biofeedback. We're right. talking you're talking about embedded um, emotion and, right. and what our heart rate does mm-hmm. and stuff like mm-hmm. that. You also use a program called HeartMath, right. which is biofeedback right. as opposed to a neurological intervention. Yeah, and HeartMath is really about there's a signal going from your heart to your brain that is actually more powerful than the signal going from your brain to your heart. So there's <laughs> you know, that's what's amazing when you learn about how much the body speaks to the brain. It, it, whereas, you know, I always grew up thinking, well, the brain is doing a lot more talking. And so uh, the, the HeartMath program has a set of breathing exercises 
that helps tune that signal in going from your heart to your brain to a positive signal so that it helps your brain function more efficiently, helps you manage your emotions, helps you feel calmer. I mean, that's the main thing is when I take people through these heart math exercises that it actually helps people reduce their anxiety fairly quickly. Um, and so, and again, you know, uh, there can be some stigma around uh, breathing exercises, you know, take 10 deep breaths. Thanks, pal. You know, but actually it works. It really does work. I was skeptical. And, and so I don't use anything that I don't, um, that haven't done myself, uh, to be honest, and, and haven't seen results. So with both EMDR and heart math, I've seen very strong results, um, helping people reduce anxiety, stress, anger. Um, it's been, it helps with sleep, uh, EMD, or, uh, heart math helps with sleep. A lot of people use the breathing exercises and it allows them to calm down, um, so that they can, they can rest. It's great that you brought up the skepticism because I, I'm a fan, right? I, right. I'm a believer, but right. also the veteran in me and the veterans <laughs> and I literally like, yeah, right, pal. Right. You know, you know, take 10 breaths in the next room. I'm just pissed off 10 seconds later. Right. Right. But, right. but, but you have actually seen veterans who came in skeptical who actually uh, saw big differences. Yeah. I had, uh, I had a veteran I worked with once that we actually started trying to do emdr and it was too much it immediately started you know the the images and the flashbacks started happening very quickly so i switched gears and started doing heart math and that was the most powerful intervention that he went through and i mean this was a this was a guy who was clearing his house every night when he came home with a gun he was clearing his house every room you know just like he'd been taught um, and understandably so, right? This was his experience. And so through the breathing exercises and, and there were other interventions happening too, but heart math was a big piece of his being able to calm down, relax, tune that good signal in so that he, you know, he didn't feel like he was on edge all the time. And I think that may be another misconception that people have about therapy is that we're just going to throw, like, there's only one tool in the toolbox, right? right. Um, or that the tool works for the same person all the time, right? right? But that's not exactly the case. Some people respond well to medication. Some people don't. Right. Some people respond better to cognitive processing therapy than, than right. EMDR and so on. Yeah. I, I, another experience that, that, that comes to mind is, a, is another uh, veteran that I worked with that EMDR was also just too much in the beginning. So we did some of the, you know, the cognitive processing, you know, telling the story. And that was, I think, more helpful. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, therapists need to have a, you know, a, a, a very diverse toolkit to be able to handle, you know, different situations because, you know, nobody's, you know, exactly the same. So what will work with one person may not work as well with the other. So you have to be able to to move and ad adapt and, you know, and uh, figure out what's the best fit for that person. And I think that's really where the benefit of, of having you know, more than just somebody to talk to, right? But actually right. having that that clinical training. Uh, so as we wrap up here, this idea of somebody's listening who may be on the fence, maybe there's a spouse, maybe a family member who they, you know, um, what would you say to somebody who's hesitant about coming into therapy? Well, I would say I get that you're hesitant, you know, that I, I understand that this, this seems scary and it seems unknown. Um, but I would also say that if you take that step, it's going to pay off dividends for you, for your family, for your loved ones. The investment you make 
going in and taking that first step and going into therapy is going to pay off in ways that you probably can't even imagine at this point. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you appreciated my conversation with Charlton and found that it had some value. Love to hear what you think about our conversation. Feel free to drop us an email at militarymind at FCCSprings.com. On today's Homefront Military Network resource segment, I'm glad to share a Homefront Military Network partner that supports the military family, Project Sanctuary. Project Sanctuary is a national nonprofit headquartered in Granby, Colorado. Believing that when one person serves, the whole family serves, Project Sanctuary takes a human-centered, solution-based approach to helping military families heal and move forward in life. Through innovative, long-term programming focused on connectedness, they restore hope and empower families to recover and thrive. Project Sanctuary believes that everyone has the right and the ability to heal. They assist military service members by reconnecting the family through a holistic approach. Their program heals the traumatic effects of military service, treating all members of the family at their level of need and enabling the service members to reintegrate into their families and communities in a healthy and sustainable manner. Project Sanctuary's work preserves the family unit, strengthens the community, the military, and the country. Heather Ely founded Project Sanctuary in 2007 while working as a registered nurse after she discovered that no organization was helping the military family as a unit. Heather founded the organization based on the concept that the best way to support the troops was to create an organization that supported the entire family. What began as one retreat bootstrapped together in the mountains of Colorado has since grown into a national organization serving thousands of at-risk military families across the country. Today, Project Sanctuary is proud to be one of the only organizations serving veterans, spouses, caregivers, and children as a family unit. Military families relocate often, isolating spouses and children and making it even more difficult to cope with the challenges and stress of military life. Project Sanctuary is one of the few national organizations empowering the entire military family by providing counseling, education, referrals to the best fit resources, and therapeutic recreation. Project Sanctuary understands that military life places unique demands both on those that serve and their families and they're ready to help any family that could benefit from their therapeutic services. Project Sanctuary sees that family is defined as any of those who support you. Project Sanctuary is currently serving veteran families, single parents, caregivers, and couples, and all families are welcome to apply. All types of families, including single individuals and the LGBTQ community, are welcome at Project Sanctuary retreats. Project Sanctuary hosts families through a six-day therapeutic retreat at locations across the United States. While at retreats, families are provided with sessions directed at improving relationships, financial literacy, and mental health. Recreational activities are strategically designed to improve family cohesiveness by providing opportunities that create bonding, improve communication, and trust. The key elements of these retreats allow for connections between veterans and other veterans, families with other families, and Project Sanctuary staff and volunteers with participants. Most importantly, the retreats bring a renewed sense of closeness and connection within the family unit. Comprehensive family support services and case management are immediately available to families who are applying for programming and support. In addition, if a family attends a retreat, Project Sanctuary dedicates at least two years of follow-up services post-retreat, which includes direct services and referrals to appropriate resources. The Family Support Program provides assistance with emergency financial needs on a case-by-case basis, staff that works with families to determine their current critical needs and assist the family in identifying the local resources that can help with those needs. 
They support families with communication prior to attending retreat to answer questions, provide support, and help connect families with additional resources and information that might be needed before traveling to a retreat. Destination resource weekends are offered three to four times a year at strategic locations across the country. These one-of-a-kind resource weekends are not your typical resource fair, but instead focus on each couple's unique and personalized needs for active duty and veteran singles or couples to build their network of support. Life goal-setting exercises kick off the weekend to help identify what each participant needs to move forward in life and thrive. Project Sanctuary families then connect with resource partners in the areas of financial planning, psychological well-being, employment, recreation, and more to set the path for success. To attend a therapeutic retreat, a $100 commitment fee via check is required before a family's retreat reservation can be officially booked. Each reservation is a valuable spot for a family and no-shows or cancellations less than two weeks from a retreat date will result in the loss of the deposit. If the family attends the retreat, their uncashed original check will be returned at the retreat. Once you get your retreat location, food, lodging, activities, and all follow-up services are paid for. You can apply online via Project Sanctuary's website at projectsanctuary.us forward slash forms. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Project Sanctuary team quickly pivoted to ensure that families were able to access and receive needed services and support, even while communities were shutting down. Project Sanctuary is one of only a few veteran-serving organizations that reinstated in-person services by developing a safer-at-retreats model effectively implemented at their first post-COVID retreat on May 22, 2020. Their new guide included best practices and protocols from the CDC, the FDA, OSHA, EPA, and ACA, as well as preventive measures to address risks associated with COVID-19 for group gatherings. In the past year, Project Sanctuary served a total of 447 individuals and 122 families at in-person retreats post-COVID. Additionally, the PS Wellness Matters Facebook group, managed by the retreat team, was created on March 27th and quickly grew. This platform provides any military family with virtual programs around physical health and mental health, nutrition, and partner resources. Project Sanctuary Caring in Action volunteers and ambassadors are also a key part of the organization, giving back to veterans and their families with the gift of time. More than 10,000 hours were contributed just last year. To find out more about Project Sanctuary, apply for the Therapeutic Retreat, Family Support, Destination Resource Weekend, or Volunteer. Visit their website at projectsanctuary.us or email them at info at projectsanctuary.us. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. I'd like to answer any questions that you have, or I'd like to know what you'd like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send me an email to militarymind at fccsprings.com, and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for informational purposes only. While I and some of my guests are licensed mental health professionals, we're not your mental health professionals. If what you discussed in this episode brings up any concerns for you, we highly recommend that you consult with a licensed mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week, and until then, remember, you're not alone. Ever. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber, inviting you to 
learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. fcsprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF and listen to the Companion Podcast on Podbean. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.